welcome to the Smoking PTSD Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Diver. I am a survivor of suicide, a survivor of childhood emotional and physical abuse, as well as a veteran of the U.S. Navy and a retired first responder. I started this podcast to help me on my journey to wellness by sharing my story, my thoughts, and my experiences in a hope that my story will reach and help others and let them know that it's okay to not be okay. With that being said, I'm not a licensed mental or behavioral health professional. I'm just a guy who's been through some stuff and has experienced a trauma survival. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, medical treatment, or therapy. Always seek the advice of your qualified mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding any mental health symptoms, and never disregard professional help or delay in seeking professional advice or treatment because of something you have heard on this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review this episode as your comments can only serve to improve the content. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, and thank you for your continued support of this podcast. In this episode, I want to talk about apathy and depression. Apathy is a lack of feeling or emotion. And it can be a lack of feeling for anything. It's the time in our lives when we say, who cares, or why bother, or what difference does it make? And when those thoughts and words fill our head, we are apathetic towards our current situation and feel that no one can help us get out of the situation that we are in. Apathy is the belief of, I can't. Two words that are always lurking in the shadows of the depressed person. I can't means no exercise, no writing, no journaling. I can't signifies an inability to get moving and to do something other than sit around and mope and feel sorry for ourselves. I can't is the mantra of those who have not healed and those who have not begun their journey towards wellness. Apathy is a feeling that I will never achieve my goals, no matter how hard I try or how hard I study. Apathy is depression's friend and counterpart, and is that voice in the back of your head that says all the terrible things you hear when you're trying to achieve something, regardless of how small that achievement may seem. And that, unfortunately, is our old friend, the amygdala at work. The smallness we feel when we encounter a new or pre-existing struggle is our amygdala telling us no. Apathy and depression are the prices we pay for having bought into our smallness and our inability to fight back against that inner voice that continues to say no. In his book, Letting Go, The Pathway to Surrender, Dr. David Hawkins writes, it's what we get for having played the victim and allowed ourselves to be programmed. And I look at it as it's the price we pay for having bought into the negativity. And why is that negativity so much easier to give into than positivity? Why is it so much easier to sit on the couch than it is to go to the gym and run on the treadmill, despite knowing the endorphins that will, release by, that will be released by that run will be cathartic? I mean, I have a bedroom in my house that I turned into a gym with a treadmill and a bench press in it. And I rarely visit it because the alternative of sitting on my ass is so much easier to do. And there are times when I just, I just don't understand that, but I do it. And this morning I actually, you know, forced myself to get up and I got on the treadmill for the first time in a long time. 
And I did a, a quick mile and a half, um, mostly walking, but a little bit of running. And I kind of giggled to myself when I got off the treadmill when the show that I was watching was over that I'm going to be sore now for the next six months. But I still was able to to get up and fight the I can't or I won't feeling and get up and do something that's positive for me and something that's going to help me to stay in shape, but also to release those endorphins. And those endorphins always make me feel good. When we say I can't, we're actually saying I won't. And those two simple words are merely a cover-up for other feelings. Saying these two words are easier than making up an entire narrative about why we cannot or will not do something. One of the biggest roadblocks to getting out from behind I can't is blame. We are innocent when we blame. We are the martyr and the recipient of sympathy when we blame other events for our own fallacies. It's this blame that allows us to move past an event without taking responsibility for the role our actions played, and it's apathy that permits us to say, I can't be responsible. When we don't get the promotion that we wanted at work, we, bring, we blame the process or the, the, the test that we had to take. When, when we don't get the grade we want in school, we blame the professor or we blame the teacher. Rather than looking at ourselves and saying, did I really study as much as I should have? And if I did study a lot, did I actually understand the subject and the subject matter that I was trying to understand? We can always point the finger at blame at something or someone. But sometimes that, that finger, you know, there's a, that old adage or something. I, I don't know if it's an adage or something that I, I saw on, uh, it might have even been Ted Lasso. But when you point one finger at me, there's three, three fingers pointing back at you. And that's kind of funny, but it's very true um, that we always want to point the finger at blame of somebody. And, you know, there's there's three fingers pointing right back at us. So most of the time, the the fault lies with us, but it's so much easier to blame someone else. Back to the last episode, we were constructing our story. You know, we are always the hero of our own story and heroes are always the good guy. The hero is always the guy who gets the girl or the girl who gets the guy and is always the the person who comes out on top. And we're always going to come out on top as long as there's somebody else out there that we can blame for us really not being on top. And again, the, the narrative that we tell ourselves is usually completely different from the narrative that other people see and other people hear. There's still a part of me that blames my mother for my father's suicide simply because I have nowhere else to direct my anger and hurt. He's gone and she remains the target. I blame her despite not knowing the truth behind their lives leading up to his death. Yet my apathy of I can't means I can't move on and I blame her as a way of shielding myself from the harsh truth. And I use that blame to discharge feelings of fear and shame. Those two emotions turn into anger as I begin to lash out at others because of my fear and shame of the subject of my father's suicide. Brene Brown writes, lashing out at others when we are in shame is not about feeling anger. It's about masking our shame with that anger, and shame-motivated anger is rarely expressed in a constructive way. Our shame floods us with emotion and pain, and the shame-blame-anger instinct is to pour it all over somebody else. And there's probably, I'm going to guess, a good portion of the people listening to this that are nodding their heads right now that it's 
because it's easier to point the finger of blame at somebody else and say, they're the reason for my anger. They're the reason for my pain. They're the reason I didn't do good enough on the test. They're the reason I didn't get the promotion. They're the reason I didn't get the job. And when we get, we get stuck in that vicious cycle of shame, blame, anger, we really don't have any way out because we're not taking the time to take a step back and to look at the bigger picture, the full set of circumstances. What were the full set of circumstances behind my father getting to the point where he needed to commit suicide? I have no idea what those are. And even knowing that I don't know what those facts are, I still point the finger of blame at my mother. Only because she's still alive and he's not. It's, there's no other reason for it than that. And that's not fair to my mom at all. But I've been doing that for the better part of 45 years. And I have no way of really getting past it because I don't have any other information to go on. Those that were there at the time and knew my dad, other family members, you know, the, the visions and the memories become cloudy over time. It's been, it's been 46 years since my dad died. Um, it's a long time. And I'm still sitting here saying, gee, who do I blame for this? Whereas it's just a matter of why do I have to blame anybody? And I, I think about that a lot is why is there anyone to blame other than him? And we simply can't blame the person who's dead because that besmirches their memory. So we blame the person who's alive and my relationship with my mother has suffered because of that. One of the first steps out of blame is to see that we are choosing to blame. Like I said before about pointing the finger. When you're pointing the finger at someone and those three fingers are pointing back at you, you're choosing to blame somebody else. But ideally and in reality, you are probably to blame all by yourself. And I want to say there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there is and there isn't at the same time. If, we un if we're blaming someone and then we stop and we realize that, hey, I'm blaming you when in fact this is my fault, that, that's a big step. Other people who have had similar circumstances, you know, they've forgiven or forgotten and handled the same situation a totally different way, but that's not how we handle it. Those of us with PTSD and with anxiety and anger issues, we, we don't constructively blame. We forcefully and sometimes violently blame. Um, look at road rage. You know, somebody cuts you off and it's this visceral reaction that happens. Um, you're blaming the other driver. Yes, the other driver may have cut you off or cut in front of you or yielded, moved into your lane, the lane you were in without a blinker, whatever the case may be. But you're blaming them for the anger that you're experiencing when that's not their fault at all. And you're allowing yourself to get into a red state of anger and blame rather than just saying, okay, 
whatever, that happened, let it go. You know, somebody, I was driving the other day and somebody cut in front of me and I just was shaking my head like, dude, seriously? And he looked in his rearview mirror and waved to me like, hey, sorry, I didn't see your car there. And I waved back and then I smiled and it was like, okay, that was easy. But then I, as I was driving along, I just started thinking about all the different ways that that could have gone differently. Uh, had he not waved or had he, even though he waved, I still honk the horn or give him the finger and it escalates from there. And for no other reason other than he made a mistake and he admitted to the mistake and waved, Hey, I'm sorry. And I waved, Hey, it's okay. And it was, it was, it was that simple. It was that simple of an exchange that took literally seconds, but I was just thinking about how that could have gone differently and how, how that does go differently. I mean, you can, <laughs> you can spend countless hours on YouTube just searching for road rage videos and you'll find a whole bunch of them. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're simple little misgivings that happen in traffic and people have lost their minds and lost their lives because of it. So apathy and depression go hand in hand with one another. And it is only when we recognize that we are in that shame-blame situation that we can take a step back and say, hold on, I should not be blaming someone else for this. I must take responsibility for it and move forward. Now, let's look at that scenario I just told you about from the other day where the guy cut me off. Was I in my rights, let's say, so to speak, to have given him the finger for such an egregious action. Yes. A lot of people probably would have or honk the horn or both, but what was I doing there? Was I blaming him for my reaction or was I doing something that was necessary for me to feel better? And they can both be a little bit right and they can both be a little bit wrong. But the, the shame blame cycle only permits us to stay in the negative space and to think that we're not the problem. It's always going to be somebody else. And there's always somebody else to point the finger at. Brene Brown goes on to talk about a conjunction of blame and perfectionism saying that perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief that fuels the primary thought if I look perfect and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. And that's really interesting in that a lot of us, a lot of people with PTSD strive for perfectionism so that we're not reminded of things that occurred in our past. And we seek perfectionism to as a way of validating that we are healing and that perfectionism is simply just another coping mechanism for our behavioral health issues. And it's just another way of avoiding blame. And sometimes we need to blame ourselves because that's the only way that we're going to heal. It's nobody else's fault that my father committed suicide other than his own. It's nobody else's fault that I didn't get promoted on the promotion, first promotional exam that I took. And I do, I blame myself for that, but you could, I also blame the process, the tests, the appeals process. You know, there's, there's myriad things to, to point the finger of blame at. 
But at the end of the day, I got more numbers wrong on the test than the guys in front of me that got promoted. And, and that's just the way that it was. That's, that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, it's a hard thing to face that you haven't done everything perfectly and that perfectionism is simply just not attainable. It's another short episode this week. Um, been trying to get these cranked out to try and stay active with it. So I hope everyone's doing well. Be safe. And again, thanks for the continued support. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me today. Please rate, subscribe, and review as your comments can only serve to improve this podcast. If you or someone you know are struggling with thoughts of suicide, please call or text the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. Veterans can also call 988 and press 1 or text 838-255. You can reach me on Twitter at PTSD, on Instagram at smokin underscore PTSD, or email me at Podcast at gmail.com. And please remember, everyone you meet is struggling with something you know nothing about, so please, let's be kind to one another.